0: Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 this morning. This is on 886 of the Bibles that are in the pew in front of you, those ESVs if you're using one of those. Otherwise, the Gospel of John chapter 1, it's the rest of the prologue, so 9 through 18. John 1, 9 through 18. And we're calling this new sermon series that we just started last Sunday just that simple because there is one consistent simple message that runs throughout this book and that is by believing in Jesus you may have life. So we have Jesus plus belief equals life. It's just that simple. And if you weren't here last Sunday I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. The, the message last Sunday kicked it off with one through eight and it contained, contained some introductory comments and some uh, material to help orient you to both the series and this particular book of the Bible. So before we go to the Word, let's, let's pray together once again. Heavenly Father, uh, we approach your Word as, as your people, and we approach it in faith. We, we believe you, we believe your Word, and we ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that we need help. So we, we lean on you completely. Please give us the power to understand and see the true meaning of this passage. Help us apply this truth to our life. And we ask that we would grow as disciples as a result of being fed by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Denise went to her 15-year high school reunion. And she really hadn't kept in touch with anybody in those 15 years. She had gone off to college and and never really looked back. She went off to college, which was out of state, and then she went right from there to grad school and then right from there to her first job. And she wasn't on social media, so she didn't get the updates and the photos. And so she was really out of touch, but she thought uh, this would be a good time to go back and reconnect. And she had another reason for going back too. She, at this point in her life, was still single and She remembered there were a couple of of guys in her class that um, she remembered fondly and she thought, who knows, maybe it's time to to start a relationship. So she went. And she got to the reunion and, of course, one of those two guys wasn't even there, but she found out he was married and, and the other one was there with his wife. And so she decided to just enjoy the evening with her friends until she saw a very handsome looking man a few feet away and she asked her friends who is that and they said oh yeah haven't you heard that's that's Scott Muskman and she said no it's not that that is not the Scott Muskman I remember in high school he's totally unrecognizable and she was right because in high school Scott had this kind of messy shock of hair that, that covered most of his face Today Scott looked like he just walked out of the barbershop. shop. He was clean cut. He had glasses and, and braces the last time she remembered those were both gone and in its place were striking green eyes and a dazzling white smile. And he was fit. Uh, Scott Muskman in high school was this scrawny little little kid. This guy had obviously been working out. And she was impressed. And she said, I think I'm going to go talk to Scott. And someone touched her on her arm and said, he's married. Don't even bother. And that was the end of that. Have you ever not recognized someone? Have you, maybe like Denise, the passage of time has just, I mean, let's face it, we change. I hope we can acknowledge that. The passage of time happens and we just don't recognize someone. Or or maybe it's another reason. Maybe it's because they're, they're too far away. Maybe you've been outside at an event or, or um, at, a, at a festival or something like that and you see them at a park and they're, they're kind of far away. You think, okay, maybe, but before I wave, I'm, I'm not quite sure it could be them. Or maybe it's not distance. Maybe it's darkness. Maybe you've been at a movie theater and, and your spouse has nudged you and said, hey, isn't that our neighbors down there? Um, could be. The hair looks the same, maybe. It happens. In fact, there are several reasons why we might not recognize someone we should. Darkness, distance, the passage of time. What about recognizing Jesus? In the rest of the prologue this morning, John says that the world didn't recognize Jesus. The Jewish people didn't recognize Jesus for the most part, but yet some did. John says that some people recognized Jesus, but most did not. And it's the same today. Sometimes Jesus is recognized, sometimes he's not. Why is that? Is it darkness? Is it distance? Is he too far away? Is it the passage of time? Some may think it's one of several reasons, but I think when we look at Scripture, we can narrow it down to just one. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we talk about recognizing Jesus. Let's read the passage. This is John 1, 9 through 18. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, has made him known. This passage begins with the true light in verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now if you are here last week, you remember John is introducing Jesus. This is the prologue. This is before the account of Jesus's life and ministry according to John. And so he's introducing Jesus. The way he presents him here is going to be how he wants them the the reader to view Jesus throughout the rest of the book. And he's still introducing him. He's still using those key words. Here we have light. But not just any light, the true light. And so if Jesus is the true light, that means there will be what? Yeah, false lights. Jesus is the true light. That means there will be false lights. In fact, scripture is replete with examples of false versions of of the true article. The Bible talks about false visions, false teachers, false prophets, false witnesses, and even false apostles. And of course, each one of these leads to false gods. False gods. So Jesus is the true light. Now in one sense, the truth is, of Christ, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that we just prayed for to help us understand Scripture, in one sense the truth of Christ comes to believers in a way that it does not come to unbelievers. We we understand that. The the Holy Spirit illuminates and gives light and, and, and Jesus reveals things to his people that, that the unbelievers are just not going to see because they're spiritually discerned. We get that. But in another sense and that's the sense that John is using here in our passage Christ gives light to everyone. The light shines and has come into the whole world. The light of Christ functions as a shining, illuminating truth that both reveals and divides. Let's take those one at a time. Reveals. First, the light of Christ reveals. General revelation, which refers to the creation, to the world, to everything that exists, everything we can see and touch, people, plants, the stars, the the sun, everything, all all the the things that, that come with general revelation, all created things, they are enough, the Bible says, to give all people knowledge of God. So that they, they have no excuse. No one can, can live in this world and say, no, there is no God without suppressing that. And this is what Romans 1 teaches us in 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So in one sense, we've got got general revelation. That's enough to show us, yes, there is a God. But then Jesus and the light of Christ, the true light, reveals the manner in which we are to respond to the general revelation. Jesus shows us how we are to respond to the God that has been revealed through creation. So general revelation says there is a God. Specific revelation or the light of Christ said, here's how you are to respond to him. Turn to Jesus in faith. Here, here's where you place your faith. In him. In Jesus. Jesus is God's provision for a sinful state that has alienated us from God. Our sin that deserves the wrath of God. Jesus reveals specifically where to put our faith and why. Where? Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one that has the perfect righteousness, the moral perfection that God demands from each one of us, and we don't have it, and because his blood is the only offering that God accepts on behalf of anyone else to atone for or cover our sin. It has to be Jesus. So the light of Jesus reveals God's provision for our salvation. Secondly, the light of Christ divides. When the light of Christ shines on someone, it's like God drops a pin on them and says, here's where you are. Here's your geotag. You're right here. This is where you are on the spiritual map. And the map is very simple. It has two sides, in Christ and outside of Christ. And there's a red dividing line that runs between the two of them. So the light of Christ shines on, on mankind and says, here's where you are. You're either over here or you're, you're over here. That's it. It's the dividing nature of the light of Christ. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're either saved or unsaved. Your, your sins are even for, either forgiven or unforgiven. That's it. There are no other options. There's no fence post. There's no neutral zone. Now this dividing nature of the light of Christ is going to be touched on in, in John 3. I just want to give us a preview here. This is John 3, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So how many sides are there? Two. Light, darkness. In Christ, outside of Christ. That's it. So the light of Christ both reveals and divides. And that's what John is getting at. That's what he is talking about when he says the light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then in verse 10, we see the the dark irony of Jesus being rejected by people, the, the creator being rejected by his creatures. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So unable to recognize Jesus. The word for know can mean know, recognize, or perceive. The NIV translates it as the world did not recognize him. They saw him. They heard him. But they did not recognize him. They did not believe in him. In verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to the Jewish people, the people that had been given the prophets, the people that had been given the word of God, the people that had this rich, redemptive history, the people that celebrated the the festival days, Passover, the people who had been set apart as as a holy nation, of all the people that should have recognized Jesus at his incarnation, it should have been them. And for the most part, they did not. They had the blood of Abraham running through their veins. They'd been told ahead of time that he was coming, and they were even looking forward to the Deliverer, the promised Messiah, and they missed it. They didn't recognize him. Yet, some believe, verse 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see how John is tying these two phrases, these two descriptions together? He's, he's saying these are synonymous. To receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus is to receive Jesus. Those that genuinely turn to him in faith, he gave the right to become children of God. And then look what happens after that. John, right after that, he says, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Three times he says, this is what it's not. Now, why? Again, we have to ask ourselves, why would, would he start heaping up negatives? Why would he go to all that trouble to tell us how you don't become a child, child of God? Well, I think the answer is in the wider historical context. Remember, the early church struggled with how to, to make the shift and the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. They had difficulty saying, well, wait a minute, do we hold on to these traditions or not? Do we have to follow these Dietary laws or, or not? I mean, circumcision, yes, no, maybe, sometimes. And they also had difficulty transitioning between deciding uh, over the fact that, or, or trying to decide whether or not, does being Jewish carry any kind of special spiritual significance? Does it, does it give you a, a, an edge when it comes to, to God and your relationship with God? And of course, the answer is no. And John's saying, it's not about who you're related to by blood. Look at these three. It's not about who your father is or who who your fathers were, your ancestors. It's not about anything physical. It's not about any action you take on your own or some action another person takes. You must be born of God. And, of course, he's talking about spiritual rebirth. He's talking about regeneration. And this is going to come up again, and we're going to hit it pretty hard in chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, being born again. Notice the book's theme here again. The only ones who are true believers, true, or excuse me, the only ones who are true children of God are those who believe in Jesus. Jesus plus belief equals life. It's just that simple. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, incarnate. And dwell among us, and we have seen His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. He did not cease being God in order to take on humanity. This is an important doctrinal point. If you mess this up, you're going to mess up the Trinity, you're going to mess up the, the doctrine of God. You're going to mess up the the Christological doctrine. We need to get this one right. He did not put off being God so he could put on being a man. He is both. He remained God and took on humanity. Let's make sure we get that one right. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and will be so forever. John is testifying, giving witness. He says, we've seen his glory Uh, Not that Jesus walked around with a perpetual glow on his face or some kind of visible golden halo or something like that. Not that. John's saying, no, I've seen this man. I've walked with this man. I've sat under his teaching. I've witnessed his signs. I've seen his resurrection. I've seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And this man is God. His glory is God's glory full of grace and truth. We'll, we'll set that aside to verse, until verse 17. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him, said this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this is another record. This is another witness or, or a record of John's witness, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, which we talked about last week. That's important. So this testimony addresses what's called the chronological priority issue. In, in the first century, uh, in, in other ancient Near East cultures, in, in, uh, in Jewish culture, it was often thought that whoever came first is best. And whoever came later, uh, not as good as who came first. And, and this is uh, something we saw when we looked at the, the book of Job. If you were here for that sermon series, you remember Job's friends kind of appealed to that. They were trying to show their superiority over Job and they said, no, no, no. We've, we've been receiving this from our fathers and, and in the past and they, they tried to link what they were saying as far back as possible. And The idea was uh, older and, and further in the past is better than the newest and the latest. And so John the Baptist is, a, is addressing this um, when, when he cries out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. He's saying, look, I understand here I am crying out in the wilderness. I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And then Jesus came after me, but he's saying, but look, he really came before me because he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And he came all the way back at the beginning. And and that was addressed in in John 1.1. And the beginning was the word. Jesus was way back in in here, the second person of the Trinity, was way back here. That's how he's actually before me, not after me. He, He wants to make sure everybody gets that. He doesn't want to put any stumbling block in the way of, of anyone when it comes to putting their faith in Christ. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. All, receivers, all believers receive grace upon grace. Is this, again, John's way of, of emphasis? Just uh, heaping up words, grace upon grace. I really mean grace upon grace. A lot of grace. Or is there another explanation? I think there is. If you've got a footnote uh, in the ESV, it says grace in place of grace. Uh, The NIV translates it, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And so with this understanding, he's not just adding words on top of each other for emphasis or just for literary device. He's saying, no, uh, this new covenant is replacing the old covenant, but both were gracious expressions of God's salvation. He's talking about the new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating. The old covenant has been replaced with, with the new covenant, but under both the law and, and the cross, we're, we're always saved under grace. I hope no one here, underst- I hope no one here believes that, that the people, uh, the saints in, in the old covenant, were saved by obeying the Mosaic law. Because that's not it. No one was ever saved by works of the law or by obeying the law. And we can see this in the preamble of the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then boom, you shall have no other gods before me. So first deliverance then law, which I want you to obey. So I saved you first, now I'm giving you my law to obey. It's not, I'm giving you my law and let's see how you do, and if you're good enough, then I'll save you. No, it's it's salvation first, it's deliverance first, and then the law. And he asks us to walk in obedience. The same thing with Christ. We don't have to meet some kind of benchmark before God views us as good enough to save. He calls us, out of his good, sovereign, free grace and mercy and will. And after we're in Christ, then we are shown how to walk with him. And we walk in grateful obedience. So both eras of redemptive history were gracious expressions of God's saving grace, but they were different. So grace in place of grace. And then look at verse 17. This confirms the reading of 16. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Here's the grace upon grace. Or grace in place of grace. Moses and the law first, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not that there was no grace under the law, or that the law wasn't true, and also not that there's no law in Christ. Okay? He's picking out the cardinal features of each covenant, and he's using them as tags to, to kind of mark these things. When you think of Moses, you think of the law. When you think of Jesus, you think of grace and truth together. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So once again, John affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how no one has ever seen God except the Son. Now in the Old Covenant, God would sometimes reveal himself in a theophany. Remember, that's a visible manifestation of God. So he would make himself visible in things like uh, the burning bush or a cloud or something like that and people could see the presence of, and representation manifestation of God but God is spirit he has no body and John says uh, in, later in 646 not that anyone has seen the father except he was from God he has seen the father so Jesus is the only one who's seen the father not us And so here in the last verse of the prologue, he refers to Jesus as God at the Father's side. He says, he's come down to show us, to reveal to us God the Father. And he has done that. To summarize this second half of the prologue, we can say this. In In the second half of the prologue to John, John writes that Jesus is the true light. And as such, he reveals God's provision for our salvation and divides all of humanity into two groups, When he came into the world, he was for the most part unrecognized and rejected, even by the Jewish people. But for those who did believe in him, he gave spiritual life and the right to become children of God. The incarnate Son of God is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus has ushered in the new covenant. And being full of grace and truth, he has made the Father known. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And once again, we're we're confronted with this fact that when Jesus came, some recognized him, but others did not. Most did not. Few recognized him. And we understand also that it still works that way today. Some recognize him and put their faith and trust in him and believe in him, but many, most, do not why well, when we don 't recognize people we we mention a few things sometimes it 's distance sometimes it 's darkness sometimes it 's the passage of time, and people change in the case of the people that were around when Jesus was walking the earth it 's not distance that, that can 't be it. Jesus lived and walked and taught and preached and healed and ministered and raised the dead for over thirty years. Jesus was in the world. So this was not just some sort of pop-in. Jesus didn't come down from the clouds and hover a few seconds and say a few words and then pull back and, and then that was it. No, he dwelt among us. He was here. Decades he was here on the earth. And when he began his public ministry, he began with a bang. Immediately he started healing people and performing miracles and signs. Uh, people began to 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 crowd around him. He he was characterized by open-air preaching and teaching. Thousands of people were were in like one big moving mass, following him around wherever he went. He was all over the place. He was there. We, We have to rule out distance. He made himself accessible and visible. I mean, look, people touched him, remember? That's how close they were. You have to get pretty close to someone to touch them or to spit on them, or to strike them with your hand, or to crucify them. So that's not it. They got very close to Jesus. Well, what about darkness? Uh, No, that's not it either. Jesus was walking around in the middle of the day. He didn't hold secret meetings at night. They didn't meet in caves. They, They didn't meet in some kind of barred door with one of those little hatches that you can open up and you have to give the password to get in. He was in the temple. He was walking around. He was on, literally out in the middle of the field. Anybody in the middle of the day could see him because it was light. In fact, it was Judas and Jesus' enemies that operated in darkness and at night. Look at John 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's at night. Jesus answered, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus taught in plain sight. So we can't look to darkness as a reason why they didn't recognize him. Well, how about the good old passage of time? This is actually the easiest one of all three. Uh, People might say, well, it's been 2,000 years. No, let's, let's think about this. Both then and now, there were people that didn't recognize him. It's not just now that it's been so long that we don't recognize him. He was literally performing miracles in front of them, real time, and they missed it. It wasn't the passage of time that can't be it. Well, what is it then? I think verse 13 tells us. Those that recognized him and received him and believed in his name were those who were born of God. God before anyone can recognize Jesus they have to be born of God before anyone is born of God they have to be effectually called by God there has to be a work of God in their hearts that enables them to recognize Jesus John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You will not recognize Jesus unless the Father draws you. Well, how does that work? What does that look like? Our old friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Q&A number 31 says this about effective, which is effectual calling. It is the work of God's Spirit who convinces us that we are sinful and miserable who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and who renews our will, this is how he persuades and makes us able to receive Jesus Christ who is freely offered to us in the gospel. Until God shows you your sin, you will not recognize Jesus. Until God gives you the desire to repent, you will not recognize Jesus. Until God gives you the gift of faith, you will not recognize Jesus. It's just that simple. That's why not everyone recognizes Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, and there's nothing we can do to enable us to recognize Jesus on our own. People need spiritual sight to recognize Jesus. Well, there's another issue related to recognizing Jesus, and it's this, recognizing Jesus and distinguishing Jesus from all other Jesuses. Because when we think of recognizing Jesus and being effectually called, we rightly think of regeneration and coming to faith. Yes, amen to that. But then we have the rest of our lives where we're being sanctified and we're walking with Christ, and it's throughout the rest of that time where this this second part really comes into play, and that's recognizing and distinguishing Jesus from false Jesuses. And the church needs to continually be on guard against false lights, against false... Jesus's. Jesus is the true light, but there are plenty of false lights They were only pretending to be true. There was a uh, hidden camera show, not, not candid camera of, of way back when, but it was something new, something more modern, and it was a, a prank. And it worked like this. They, they had a man who had been invited to his reunion. It was his 10-year reunion. And they got a decoy to play the part of the man. And, and the man himself was just an average-looking guy. And the decoy was significantly better-looking. And it seemed like he just kind of had it together a little bit more. And so the man himself sat outside around the corner in a van, kind of like a police stakeout, with a couple video and audio techs. And they stayed in the van, where the, and the decoy went into the reunion and started introducing himself as, as the man out in the van. And he went around the room and a lot of people bought it. A lot. Now, he was of similar height, similar uh, hair color and, and, and things like that, but it was not the same man. And he would introduce himself and people would say, oh, yeah, oh, wow, you, you look great. And he would say, yeah, I've been working out I made a few changes. And he would just kind of keep it low-key. And it worked. He fooled a lot of people and it helped because he had been prepped by the man in the van. So he knew some details about the high school. And in particular, there was one event in which he had been on stage at some kind of assembly and he had done something that was really funny or something really embarrassing. And so he had talking points. He could speak to that event pretty, pretty, pretty closely, pretty accurately. And so people were buying it. But not everybody. There were a few people that were suspicious. And they weren't, they weren't just going along with this story, and even though he he seemed like he knew the right answers, they could smell something was off, so they pressed him. They started digging a little deeper, and by halfway through the night, there was at least a couple of his classmates that stood up and pointed to him and said, you're not my friend from high school, and they called him out. Tragically, the church in every generation, is lured away by false Jesuses. It is lured away by a decoy, Jesus. And here's the thing. The decoys have got some of the talking points down pretty well. They, they have enough of the truth. They, they talk about some of the things that are true enough that they fool a lot of people. Consider these decoys. Some religions say that Jesus was a prophet, Okay, that's true. That's one of his threefold offices, prophet, priest, and king. He was the ultimate prophet, priest, priest, and king. That's true. But he wasn't just a prophet. Some say they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're three separate gods. Some say they believe in the Father and the Son, but the Son was created, so they don't worship him. Some say that Jesus was born of a virgin, dwelt among his people, died on a cross, rose again from the grave. But they say baptism purifies from original sin. And they say not just Jesus, but Mary also was born without a sin nature. And they say Jesus has made salvation possible on the cross, but that his grace has been entrusted to their church, and you need to have faith plus works to be saved. That's a decoy. Others believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe in Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, that faith alone is necessary for salvation, but that their Jesus does not require anyone to repent with sin. Especially if that sin is somehow linked with your identity or who you are or who you declare yourself to be. Instead, Jesus is all about acceptance and compassion and belonging. He would never turn anyone away who says that they believe in him. Could we pick Jesus up out of a lineup like that? Those are all decoys. Some of them have quite a bit of the details down. But they're all decoys. And a lot of people believe in those Jesuses. Millions of people believe in those Jesuses. Millions. But others don't. And the only way to recognize the real Jesus is to press and to dig a little deeper. The only way is to go to God's revelation to us, look through it, check it out, ask pointed, specific questions, and don't accept evasive answers. Don't accept answers that contradict other parts of it. Don't accept answers that include something else that claims to be a revelation from God. The only way is to dig deeper into God's word. I don't want anyone to get fooled. and Because when it comes to recognizing the real Jesus, this is no prank. Okay? That's not a sound and video tech out in the van. That's Satan. And he's a master deceiver. And he wants to deceive as many people as possible and at the same time let them think that they figured it out on their own. Let them not know they've been deceived. And he's not done presenting false lights. Satan manufactures false lights like, like cars off an assembly line, and he just continually sends them into the church one after another. And they're there, and they're slick. There may come a time when one of these decoys is presented to you, maybe uh, a friend that you always thought was solid in Christ, but they, they present a decoy Jesus. Maybe a family member that you never really questioned, maybe extended family member that you just assumed was in Christ, they go to church, but, but they present a decoy Jesus. Maybe a YouTube teacher. Maybe you've, maybe you've caught somebody on YouTube and they seem to be saying a lot of good stuff, but they present a decoy Jesus. Maybe a Bible study in someone's home. Maybe a book you read. Or maybe a decoy Jesus springs up in your own heart as you try to make your beliefs fit with what he's saying in scripture. And when the two don't match up, well, it's easier to to get a false Jesus to go along or, or, or to justify some kind of sin that's in your life. And instead of confronting it, I'd, I'd rather think of Jesus that just is the kind of Jesus who doesn't really worry about that type of thing or that it's okay. Or maybe a decoy Jesus that, that helps you feel okay with your adult child, your adult son or daughter who's, who's taken a path of a sinful lifestyle and you don't want to think of them as, as going to hell. So you, you create this decoy Jesus that is okay with that, it's possible. And some of you may be sitting here saying, Well, I'm never going to fall for a decoy of Jesus. Really? Because I've seen people that in a million years I would not have thought fell for a decoy of Jesus, and they did. I've seen it from a distance, uh, seminary professors. I haven't known them personally well enough to say I know them personally, but um, I've seen it from a distance. But I have seen it up close in family members, I've seen it up close in friends. I've seen it up close in church officers. It happens. People are just chugging along, and then all of a sudden, uh, wait a minute, what? If you find yourself tempted to start falling for a decoy Jesus, remember what is at stake uh, I knew a, an Army medic who would who would treat people, and it, it was bloody. And um, he said, the one thing I do, no matter where I'm at, is I always put on my gloves first. And he said, even though I see them, they're in need, and I want to get in there. I want to help them as fast as I can. He said, but I always put my gloves on first. And what helps me remember that and helps me check and, and come back to that is that I remember what's at stake. He said, I flip open my medical case and I've got a picture of my wife and son. And he said, I know that if I don't and if I contract some disease, I may bring it to them. And he said, so I flip it open, I see that, and I think, gloves first. No matter how bad they're bleeding, no matter how bad they need attention, I remember what's at stake. The next time you are tempted To go or to fall after or to be wooed by a decoy, Jesus. Remember what's at stake. Look what he says. But to all who did, for all who recognized Jesus, received and believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's your salvation that's at stake. That's what we're talking about. It's your eternity, it's heaven or hell forever. Let's put it this way. If you die following a fake Jesus, you don't get to be with the real Jesus. That's what's on the line. Ask yourself, is it worth it? Whatever it is that's drawing you away, is it worth it? Am I ready to let go of the true light? Do I really want to really relax my grip on, on true doctrine? Just kind of let the rope slip through my hand a little bit. Flip open your medical bag. Take a look at a picture of your salvation in Christ alone. That's what's at stake. It's not worth it. A little compromise, a little comfort, ease, pleasure, uh, worldly gain, the fleeting acceptance of, uh, of an approval of other people, or worse yet, the world. Really? Do we really want to be accepted by the world? Do we need their approval that much? I hope not. Remember what's at stake. This is, this is something we can, we can count on. Every true believer who is in Christ is a believer who is remaining in Christ. Every true believer who is in Christ is a believer who is remaining in Christ to the end. The children of God are those who have been given the Spirit of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, who have, been, who have recognized, received, and believed in Jesus Christ and continue to remain in Christ and continue to believe in Christ because they recognized the true light. And no matter how many decoys come and go, they are going to remain in the true light. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, the true light, who has come into the world. We thank you that you have shown us exactly how to respond to your general revelation. We know, we are without excuse, there is a God. And you've also shown us how to respond to that, to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and follow him our whole life. Father, we thank you that Not only is the new covenant grace in place of grace, but we also thank you that our salvation is literally grace on top of grace. We acknowledge and and freely, joyfully confess Jesus is Lord, our, our salvation is from God, it's all you. And Father, in light of your grace, would you enable us to walk faithfully all the days of our life? Amen.